for such privilege to be back in God's presence on a Sunday service. If you are joining us on Facebook Live or you are joining uh, in our Zoom room, but you are, uh, you are for the first time or you are joining from another place, we just say you are very welcome. God bless you. May God reach you right, right where you are as well. And I want to say thank you to everyone who labors week in, week out in this church to make things function and to make things happen and to help us to do the work. And I pray that God will continue to reward you in, uh, in immeasurable ways. God will do things beyond your own comprehension in the mighty name of Jesus. We want to thank God for this service. By the grace of God today, we are continuing on our series on the uniqueness of Christ. The uniqueness of Christ. We started by saying that what makes Christianity different is that we have a savior. We do not just have a prophet. We do not just have a leader. We don't have a cult leader. We don't have somebody who uh, uh, leads uh, uh, just a sect of people. But we have a savior of the world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. God's plan and, and God's intention and God's agenda for humanity revolved around Jesus Christ. The one that was, the one that is, and the one that is to come. He is so unique in many ways. And in the very first few sessions of what we've been going through the last four weeks, this is the week five, on this series of the uniqueness of Christ, it is five, it is uh, nine in number. We're just on week five now. And in the first four weeks, we looked in over the uh, space of the four weeks in two series in, in two parts each, we looked at the supremacy of Christ, and we also looked at the uniqueness of his priesthood. We said his priesthood is a perfect priesthood. And uh, we tied this to what had happened in the Old Testament, looking at what the priests and uh, those that God had raised up over time to be people who administered the law and who also were as intercessors between God and his people. And we said Jesus came just with one full swoop. He took charge of all the things that needed to have been done that were done for several times in several years that God, uh, by his wisdom, caused Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice who has done it once and for all. And so on this fifth session, we are looking at the uniqueness of Christ in the new and better covenant that he has brought. Hallelujah new and better covenant that he has brought. And this is covering the whole of chapters 8, 9, and 10 in the book of Hebrews where we have been studying all along. And I want us to know that, as I said over and over, the book of Hebrews is a very, very interesting book because it was written specifically to a set of Christians who came originally from the Jewish tradition and background. So they, have a very, they had a very deep understanding of priesthood. They had a deep understanding of the law. This was their life. This was the life of their forefathers. So it became necessary that this book was, this letter was written to them so that they understood clearly what this new priesthood was offering, 
what this new covenant was all about because they knew some covenants that was had with their forefathers. So what's different, you know, and it, it had to be that this letter was written to explain to them. And for us today, it is so powerful because reading the book of Hebrews helps us to understand the uniqueness of Christ, not just over the Jewish tradition or the Jewish religion, but also in its standing among even every other religion and the uniqueness of Christ and what he offers. And we must understand this because as Christians and as people who name the name of the Lord, this becomes our strength. The Bible says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So it is what we know about the one whom we have yielded our lives to that helps us to enjoy the truth that he offers. And so this is the essence of this session today, looking at the new and better covenant in Christ. And I want to start us by reading from Hebrews chapter 8 in the course of today. Uh, as I said, because our, our um, verses are found from... Um, can we have our banner just to show where we are, we're at? And um, this, this is the banner. Thank you very much. Uh, the new and better covenant, as you can see. And we have three main themes left after now, which we will look at over the next four weeks. Heritage of faith in Christ will take us in two parts and then live on faithfully in Christ and Christ the great shepherd. And uh, by the grace of God, that will be our set of teachings right through to the end of June. Thank you. But as we go on today, I'd like us to quickly look at Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 1 to verse 2. Hebrews chapter 8 from verse 1 to verse 2. The Bible says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Don't forget he has been saying a lot of things about the uniqueness of Christ from his supremacy being the one that was the one that existed in the beginning, the one that created all things where we read Hebrews right from chapter 1, verse 1, the one who uh, now begins to be, be the one that through whom God is speaking, God who has oftentimes before spoken through the prophets and the servants, but now is speaking to us expressly by his son and all that and then his priesthood, his, 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 his priesthood being unique, being perfect, being the one who intercedes and also the one who sacrifices. But this sacrifice is so special because he sacrificed himself. Every sacrifice had to do with the shedding of blood. But here was Christ who shed his own blood as the perfect ultimate sacrifice that no sacrifice can ever be better than. And so many uniqueness of him. And this sacrifice was done once and for all, unlike the Old Testament where sacrifices had to be done annually. So the writer said in Hebrews 8 verse 1, he said, now this is the main point. Having said all this that we've said, this is the main point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Just to reinforce the point that he is no longer needing to go into any holy of holies. He is no longer needing to shed any sacrifice. He is not coming again to die for another, another sin of the world. He is not coming again to do a sacrifice. He is now seated. He is now planted at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The Bible calls him in verse 2 a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. 
not just of the tabernacle of old, but the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not the one that men erected with their hands as he directed them. He said there is a tabernacle. This tabernacle is in your heart and is in my heart. It is a place where he himself has made a habitation in the hearts of men. This is why Jesus said in Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If you, anyone open their hearts to me, I will come in and I will sup with them. I will come into the tabernacle of their hearts and I will sup with them. He said, this is a minister of this sanctuary. And the Bible says, we are the temples of the living God. We are no longer just the sanctuary that was built in the tabernacles in the, in, the, in the wilderness or the temple that was built in Jerusalem. We are now the sanctuary. We are now the carriers of this great God. What an awesome privilege. And the Bible says he's a minister. You can see the word minister in my translation with a capital M, and I believe it's the same in yours. And uh, he is a minister which represents the, 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 the Godhead. He is a minister not like a man, not the same minister like it was in the Aaronic priesthood. So this is the covenant that we have. And when we talk about a covenant, we need to remember that a covenant is an agreement between two parties. This kind of covenant that is from God is a covenant that does not include your negotiation and my negotiation. God stipulates the conditions. He stipulates the terms, even though he is entering into it with man. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes is non-negotiable. Man cannot come back to God and say, you see, I, 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 I want to have eternal life, but I don't agree to this term. I would like to go through another person. I would like to, to, to just be good and, and still come into eternal life. No, this covenant is a fixed covenant ordained by God, ratified in the heavens by the blood of Jesus, and man can do nothing about it other than to obey and this is very important. This is why we don't call our covenant a contract. Even though if you look at the definition, Bible, uh, dictionary definition of the word covenant, part of it will be the word contract. A contract is something you negotiate. Those of us who are into business and who do different kinds of business, you will know that at one point or the other you have entered into a contract. And as a matter of fact, you don't need to do business. Your mobile phone, you have a contract. Whether it's a contract of your SIM only or your contract of your handset or whatever kind of contract, you have a contract that you have to fulfill. And if you fulfill your part by paying what you need to pay, then what you negotiated for in terms of what they offer you as a service must be delivered so you can query it. So this is why we don't say the covenant of God is like a contract. It's not a contract. At times believers try to put it that way, but it's not. A contract means that the other party, one party, both parties have a say in the two. Technically, but this covenant is one directional, not because God is mean, not because God is wicked, but because God made man and God knows what is right for man. Man does not know what is right for him. That's why in the Garden of Eden, he said to him, he said to, you, he said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of everything in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. But we all know that man did not understand Man thought that God was trying to box him in, particularly when the Satan, when, the, when Lucifer deceived him. When Satan came and said to him, you will not die, you will not die. Trying to alter the covenant, trying to alter the phrase of the covenant. He said, you will not die, you will only become like gods, knowing between good and evil. And man was deceived. 
And of course, we know the rest is history. Man fell. But the reality is that, you see, to show you that man does not know everything, when he fell and he saw himself naked, he went and cut leaves to cover himself, just to expose to us how feeble man is, how limited man is, especially in the fallen state. And man now had to do what is right to cover sin, right from the Garden of Eden, by slaying an animal, shedding blood, and then covering man with the hides. So he knows more than we know. He made us. He knows everything about us. We need to trust him in this covenant. We need to trust him with every promise of the covenant. If God said that this is what we ought to do to maintain the covenant, first, to come into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, we have no choice. Mankind has no choice. The principle of postmodernism and relativism and all these things that are going about trying to uh, make it sound as if it's old-fashioned to say that there can only be one way has not changed anything. We can decide to make as many ways as we want. It does not change what God has said. This does not make us religious bigots. This does not make us people who see ourselves better than anybody else. No, it just makes us people who understand the God who made us. It just makes us people who have humbled ourselves to say, if God is the one who formed me, then he must know more than I know. And if this is the way he has prescribed, I need not to argue. I need not to debate it. I just need to obey him. And so every one of us must understand if we are partakers of this new covenant, we must be resolute. We must be full of understanding and assurance that this new covenant that he now gave us, he gave the old covenant and of his own free volition and will, in due sense of time, he released the new covenant that you and I are now partakers of. The Bible calls it a mystery in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. He said it had been hidden from ages and generation. But for now, God has released it unto us. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It never becomes a mystery as long as Christ, it never becomes an a revealed mystery until Christ is formed in you and I. It remains a mystery for as many who Christ is still knocking on the door of their hearts. It remains a mystery. It remains something confusing. It remains something that is intangible. But as many who have allowed Christ into their lives, it no longer is a mystery. It becomes a revelation. It becomes a joy. It becomes the peace. The Bible says, for the kingdom of God is in that righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, the Bible makes us to understand, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator, the one who brought this covenant and laid down his life, the perfect high priest who is our intercessor, who is our sacrifice, is also the mediator of this better covenant. The Bible calls it a better covenant. And if God calls something better, I don't know. <laughs> you and I must understand that God knows good, better, and best. If God said that what he had before was good. <laughs> but you see, this is better. You know what is the best? The best is at the end of all this, when Jesus comes for us and then we be like him and we are perfected, then we get to the ultimate of the best of the covenant, which had been from the foundation of the earth. God's intention is to have man be like him. The Bible says he created man in his own image and after his likeness. So sin came in and man now had to start from the good, the better, and ultimately to enjoy again the best, the unfallen state, the perfect state 
That is why the Bible says, them whom he called, them whom he foreknew, he called. Them whom he called, he justified. And them whom he justified, he then glorified. Hallelujah. So God's redemption plan has been physically put in place right from the beginning. And I'd like you to write down these scriptures. We don't need to turn to them. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, we remember the story of Abraham. We had what is called the Abrahamic covenant. That is where the promise was given. The promise of rest, the promise of multiplication, the promise of blessings was given in that Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It is the covenant we still enjoy today, but now enforced in a better place by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When man was now called out, as Abraham called, was called out, I've said to you many times during this series that Abraham called out represents the church, those who are called out of darkness, the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. As Abraham was called out, we also are called out from sin, called out from shame and reproach, and now are walking in the better covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes us to understand that that was what happened in the days that Abraham was called out. But at a time when the children of God needed to know how to relate with God, God raised up a man in the person of Moses. Moses was raised up, and by God's privilege, Moses was given the law to administer to the people. So we have what is called the Mosaic Law, which is, we can see the relationship with that as it was established and explained in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. The whole of Exodus 24 is good to read, but you can read verse 3 to 8. And then the, we, we also know, and that was the establishment of the law. The law was given to put man in check. The law was not a savior. The law was not to save man. The law has no capacity to save man. But the law has the ability to get man to see where he's falling short. So it was given on tablets of stone and written in books. And it had to be pasted on their foreheads. It was needed to be walking from, their out, from the outside to the inside of man. The law was given to man for man to see and man to make informed decisions about how he behaved on his inside. And this was why it was very difficult. So every time man looked at the law and they fell short, they had to combine them, they had to gather the sacrifice and go once a year to say, Lord, have mercy, we have fallen short. That was why it was a good covenant, keeping man in check, but the better covenant was to come. So the Mosaic law was given to put man in check. It was not given to save man. Man could not be saved and can never be saved by law. In fact, that law is called the law of sin and death. And so as God was progressing, he gave what is called the Davidic covenant. What we call the Davidic covenant is when David woke up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, you can read the 16 verses there. And David said, look at me, I'm living in a palace. You know, David loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. David could not sit down and just be like that. He's either he's singing or he's writing a poem or he's writing a psalm or he's doing something. He, he, he just loved the Lord. And he sat down one day in his nice house. He's, he's won all the wars. Now everything around, around David was, 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 like, was like rest. 
And David said, Lord, he called Nathan the prophet. He said, ah, how can we just be like this? I'm living in my own panel houses and God, my panel house and God is still living in tabernacles of tents. He said, I'm going to build him a house. <laughs> I just love that man. I love that man. He said, I'm going to build him a tabernacle. God, I'm going to build him a temple. God called Nathan and said, go and tell David that I'm the one that called him out of his sheephold. You can read that. It's a lovely, lovely portion of scripture. I like reading it every time in 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 1 to 16. And the Bible says that God said to, said to Nathan, go and tell David, I'm the one that called you out. I'm the one that made you shepherd from shepherd to king. I'm the one that gave you rest round about. And I can understand that you want to do this for me. But have I ever asked human being to build me? A, 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 have, I not, have I ever commanded anyone to build me a temple? He said, I lived in the tabernacles that were built by, by, by man because I wanted to show my presence to them. He said, but what is going to happen is that the one that will come through your loins will build this temple. And when... David was giving that message through prophet Nathan. Everything settled in him. And he did not bother again, of course, as we know the story, until his son was born. And then he handed over to him. And he prayed for his son. And then we know the temple was built. But you see, the building of the temple in Jerusalem was to mark the permanence, was to show the transition between the temporal to the eternal. The transition between the temporal, the tabernacle used to go with them as they moved from place to place in the wilderness, they set it up again. And they worshiped there for as long as they were there. When it's time to move and the cloud of glory was moving, they moved the tabernacle with them to the next place. That was what was happening. Then that was very, very temporal. Even though the temple was still a temporal form, but because of its fixity, in the city of peace, in the order of Melchizedek, where the king of Salem was to rule spiritually, the temple was now to indicate the transition of the eternal kingdom, the eternal tabernacle, the eternal sanctuary that was going to be rectified by Jesus Christ in your heart and in my heart. Hallelujah. And so God made it possible for David to build the temple through his son at that point. So when Jesus came, he now unfolded the redemptive plan. In Luke chapter 22, we'll read it later today during our communion just to remind ourselves. When at the Passover, he said to them, he said, now lift up the cup. He lifted it up. He lifted up the bread. He said, this is, the, this is the, my body which is broken for you. And then he lifted up the cup. He said, this is the blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant. And every time you partake of it, you will remind yourself what I have done. Giving you a better covenant, taking you to the best of God, taking you to the glory and the place that God has ordained for you. This change was not accidental. The word of God is complete. A great servant of God called prophet Jeremiah the one that God said that he had formed in the womb, before he was formed in the womb, he knew him and ordained him a prophet, got a revelation of what was going to happen about this new covenant. Now, let's all read Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The Bible says, behold, verse 31. He said, behold, the days are coming. This is a prophet that lived 3,000 years before Jesus. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. 
He said, this one will not be according to the covenant that I made. Verse 32, he said, it will not be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand. This will be something more. He said, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He said, my covenant which they broke, not I broke. They broke that covenant. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. The people broke that covenant. You remember when the Bible says they rose up to play. And the Bible says many times they rejected him. And they say, who is this God that has led us out of Egypt? And so on and so forth. And their doubt and unbelief led God to destroy many of them in the wilderness because they were people who were full of unbelief, especially after God showed them the promised land and yet they doubted him. He said, it is not according to that covenant. God does not break covenant. Man is the one that breaks covenants. Psalm 89 verse 34, you can write that down. The Bible says, my covenant will I not break. This is one of the deepest revelations of King David when he wrote that psalm. He said, my covenant will I not break, neither will I alter the things that have gone out of my lips. My covenant will I not break, neither will I alter the things that have gone out of my lips. That is God. But man can break it. That's why when we read in Hebrews chapter 6, he said it is impossible for those who have come into that covenant and have tasted of the heavenly things. He said when they go back, he said it is impossible. That is become, they become apostate. They can break the covenant. Man can break the covenant. So you and I must understand that even though we are walking in a new and better covenant, we still have a sense of duty, a responsibility to maintain that covenant. One saved is ever saved from God's perspective, but it may be broken by man's rejection of God. No apostate man will go into heaven, according to scripture. So let us understand. Now, we, we, we don't talk about, about falling, which we don't encourage. We don't talk about a Christian and one who finds himself falling from time to time and just picking himself back up. The Bible says even if such a righteous one will fall, he, 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 he will rise up again. Even if he does it seven times, he will rise up again. And then you start counting the seven again, he will rise up again. As long as he's rising up to say Jesus is Lord, he may be injuring himself by doing things that he doesn't need to do and be getting suffering for what he doesn't need to suffer. For example, if somebody takes on a, a, a sin of just, you know, of drunkenness and just drinking and drinking heavily, they may ruin their own lives. They may ruin their own lives, ruin their own liver, ruin, ruin their own organs. But it doesn't mean that if they, keep, if they repent that they will not make it to heaven. It doesn't mean so. But you see, they suffer unnecessarily. And it works for every other sin. But you see, the truth is that as far as God is concerned, his covenant to make man become, uh, 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 to, to make man a saint remains intact. But when man becomes apostate and says Jesus is no longer Lord of their lives, Jesus cannot be God, then there is nothing even God can do about such. So we need to bear in mind and to help ourselves very intentionally that God must continue to keep us in this new covenant. God said through, Abraham, uh, through Jeremiah in verse 33, he said, this is the covenant, verse 33. He said, this is the covenant, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will 
put my law in their minds, not on tablets of stone anymore, and write it on their hearts, and then I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will institute a personal relationship with them. They will be, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And my law, you see, the law was not completely removed. That is why Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. The only difference now is that the law, like I said earlier, is not something you read from outside to try and inform an internal change. The law now, receiving Jesus Christ, gives you the law on the tablet of your heart, which guides your thinking, which guides your behavior, which rather than you trying to keep a set of rules, these things now work from your inside to the outside. They inform your thinking. This is why when a man becomes born again, the Bible says he is a new creation. A creation now influenced by the laws of God. Not one who is trying to follow the laws of God, but the ones who the laws of God by the spirit of God are now outworking through. So when people say, but that was the law, and this is, and they, they get it confused. The law has never, ever been removed. The only difference is that we are not now keeping a set of rules of do's and don'ts to make it to the eternal life. No, when we come to Jesus Christ, the law is imputed in the, the platform and the tablets of our hearts, and it begins to inform how we think. We no longer want to lie naturally. Something will kick on your inside when you want to tell lies. When you have urges and feelings that are immoral sexually. Because just for the law that says you shall not commit adultery, which includes every kind of sexual uh, 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 promiscuity and sin, then there's something on your inside that says you should not be doing that. When you want to dishonor your parents, something in your, as a child of God, something will tell you you should not be doing that. So the law is still there but it's in the tablet of your heart not as a set of rules that you must be keeping but as something that God is working on your inside by his spirit. The Bible says and therefore in Romans chapter 8 we have the spirit itself is bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. What, is that, what does that mean? Does it mean that he keeps telling to us you are a son of God, you are a son of God, you are a son of God. No. What he's saying to us is that this is who you now are. You are a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become new. This is the way you used to reason, but this is now how you must reason. This is the way you used to have a disregard for the things of God, but this is how you must have a, a regard for the things of God now. So it works from your inside to your outside. And so we must understand in verse 34, he said, No more shall any man teach his neighbor. Verse 34, No more shall any man teach his neighbor and every man his brother. Verse 34, Every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Because Jesus Christ was coming to deal with sin. God said to Jeremiah, this will be the new covenant. This will be the better covenant. And look at what he said in verse 34. He said, no more shall every man teach his neighbor. No more. Every man will not have to be taught. Every man will be taught directly by God. 
Does that mean we will not evangelize? Does that mean we will not explain? We will not be having teaching and preaching like this? No, it just simply means that I do, you don't need me to give you understanding. Only the Holy Spirit, the spirit of understanding will do that. I can help you. I can show you. I can teach. I can do the things. Sometime very soon we'll be having a series on the five-fold ministry, on the, on the ministry gifts and seeing how each one is meant to help in the equipping of the saints. There is a place for it. But we must understand that the relationship that God has with everyone is inward. First and foremost, it is inward and spiritual. It is inward and spiritual. It is not outward and physical like it was in the days of the laws of Moses in the Mosaic law. That was outward and physical. This is inward and spiritual. So inside you, the spirit of God is bearing witness and it is by the spirit that you worship God. John chapter 4 verse 24. So everything is done in the spiritual sense of it. Your, out, your outlook and your countenance may not change. The way you bab, take, care, take care of your hair and, uh, and trim it and have it done may not change. The kind of clothes you wear or may not even necessarily change unless you are convinced by the Holy Spirit that certain clothes were not appropriate for you. It may not change. But the reality is that there must be a change from your inside that outworks every other thing. And this is also personal. This is not to a group of people. The laws were given to the children of Israel, but the salvation is given to everyone who comes. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the Bible says, for everyone who comes to the Lord, everyone who calls on Jesus shall be saved because there's no salvation in any other name other than the name Jesus, whereby men shall be saved. And John 1, 12 says, for as many that received him, he gave them power to become the sons of God. It is personal, and at the same time, it is universal, which means it is personal and it is open to all. Jews, Gentiles, is open to all. This is not a covenant, that a new covenant that is for an exclusive few, like the Mosaic law was for the children of God that were Hebrews. We must understand that it is important we remember this every time. This new and better covenant is inward. It is spiritual. This new and better covenant is personal and it's universal. I have said it to you many times. No other believer has more access to God than you. When the Bible says, let us come, it's us, it's believers. Come boldly that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Everyone has that equal opportunity given to them under this better covenant. In the Mosaic law, they did not. Only one person had that privilege once a year to come before the Lord on behalf of the people. What a better covenant that is. And to top it all, this covenant dealt with sin once and for all. It did not become a yearly thing that has to be done as a routine. It dealt with sin once and for all. So that's just a very quick whiz through of Hebrews chapter 8. And you know we have three chapters this week. 
I won't read through Hebrews chapter 9 before I go straight into chapter 10, where we read our Bible reading from. Hebrews chapter 9 just begins to remind us that, you know, there was, there's a difference between the earthly and the heavenly sanctuary. There's a need for a mediator, and obviously the greater sacrifice was, the greatest sacrifice was given by Jesus Christ. If you read Hebrews chapter 9, that was just the context of everything. In the course of the week, because we take these topics and go further into them, in the course of the week, we will be picking out some things from there. But it's just to remind us of everything that has happened. In verse 16, the Bible says, For where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity of the death of the testator. So that became the establishment of this new covenant. Because there must be the death of the testator. Now, you see, the testator here is Jesus Christ. The reason why the old covenant did not have power is that the sacrifices had no control over themselves. The sacrifices were animals who have no willpower, nothing. They were caught by men and, and slaughtered by men. The man who was sacrificing has no relationship with that blood per se. So when Jesus came, in Gethsemane, when he said, not my will, but your will be done, he took upon himself the only will of God to have the blood, the perfect blood for the perfect sacrifice. So he himself brought the New Testament through his own death as the testator for the first time. Every other bull, every other oxen, every other sheep, every other ram, whatever dove had been sacrificed before could never ever bring the testament because they were, their blood was not good enough to become the testament. I was having some very wild thoughts recently, and this is not in the Bible, but I just, I just, I just was thinking, why did God prevent Abraham from sacrificing Isaac? Paradventure, not to confuse the children of Israel, that one day someone of them would have said, after all, Isaac also raised, was raised from the dead. <laughs> you can go and think about that some other time. <laughs> but God is very detailed. Because he knows them. Maybe one day, one of them will say, you are saying Jesus Christ is the only one that was raised from the dead. How about our father Isaac? And then it becomes an issue. So he made sure that I don't kill him because he knows that that was the child of promise. So rather than kill him, because God, look at that. Abraham knew, the Bible says in Romans 4, that he had a God that quickens the dead and calls those things that be not as though they were. So God chose the option of the things that were not as though they were to provide a ram instead of quickening the dead in Isaac. Go and study that one, go and think about it, and I pray God gives you understanding. But I was just having that kind of uh, meditation time, and I felt, hmm, this is, this is very deep here. God help us in Jesus' name. And then in verse 28, the Bible says, so Christ was offered once, hallelujah, not yearly again. He's not coming in 2021 to say, I'm coming to do the sacrifice again. And then he comes again in 2022. Imagine if God has been coming every time, he would have come 50 times for me. Some of you, 60 times. Some of your parents, 80 times. Some of your grandparents that are still alive, 90 times, 92 times. (laughs) 
and he would have done that for the billions of people on earth, coming every year, coming every year, and taking it on as many. No, 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 no. He did it only once to bear the sins of many. Your name is included in that many. So never let the devil call you a sinner anymore. You are not a sinner saved by grace anymore. You were. But the moment you became saved, you became a saint. The moment you became saved, you became a saint. Because he did it once. And as many that become saved, they become a saint. The Bible says to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. This is what our life is all about. Waiting eagerly, not anxiously, because it is evil to be anxious. Those who eagerly wait, it is eagerly waiting a second time. He is not coming for sin, but our ultimate salvation. He is no longer coming to offer any sacrifice for sin. He has done it once, and that is the once for the many. But he is coming again to take you and I home. Oh, we used to sing those songs. He's coming back again. My Lord is coming back again. We used to sing those songs and just joke in secondary school. But those songs are so deep. He went away and promised that he's coming back again. If you hold this thought every day, you will have no room fighting anybody that wants to fight you. You will have no room thinking about lust and fornication. You will have no room thinking about the things of, of, of trickery and lies and deceit. Because you know he's coming back again. Because you don't know when he will come. When I see Christians who are, who are keeping things and are, and are going on in anger and bitterness, it shows that they don't know that he's coming back. What if he comes meeting you in that place of anger and fury? Have you ever thought about it? What if he comes on that bed of adultery? Have you ever thought about it? What if he comes in that place where I say, let me just quickly do this fast deal, fast deal, and it's all a shoddy evil thing. Have you thought about it? The Bible says he's coming back for salvation. So we eagerly wait for him. The eager wait doesn't mean that we're just looking up every day and saying, Lord, come. It means that we're comporting ourselves and we're going through some things that the Bible tells us to do in Hebrews 10 as we read in our Bible reading today. But those are the things we need to be doing eagerly as we wait for him. Because he's coming for our salvation. So I want to quickly take us through those four things very quickly that should be our response to this new covenant. And that will take us to Hebrews chapter 10. This is the fastest you can go through Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, I tell you. We could have still been in Hebrews 8, 1, and 2 if I really want to take time to sit down there. It's a very deep book, very, very deep book. Hebrews chapter 10. The first thing is that we need to be bold. He said, therefore, verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... We must have boldness. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what that means. Ephesians 5 tells us that washing of the way sanctifies us by the washing of the water by the word. He sanctifies us by the washing of the water. So when he talks about having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, it means our hearts are being transformed. The Bible says that we all are being transformed from one image of glory onto the other. And then he said our bodies washed with pure water. We are allowing ourselves continually for by the washing of the water by the word to be sanctified to be removed consistently from those things that want to plague our spiritual journey but the key thing here is that we must be bold we must be bold 
Boldness does not mean arrogance. It has nothing to do with pride. Boldness simply means we recognize the great gift and the great sacrifice and we are appreciative of it and we come boldly. God wants us to come boldly. Hebrews 4, he said, come boldly. Here we see him again in Hebrews 10. He said, come boldly, having the boldness. Do you know how I see this? I can just give you one illustration, but it's not perfect. It's like I'm, I, I take my family now on a holiday and we go to some far country and I've paid for the hotel, I've paid for all the meals, everything is paid for. And I said to everyone there, I said, my children, my family, just any time you want to eat, everything is paid for. Whether you want to order it to the room or go to the lounge, if you feel like, just have your fill because it's paid for. And then, I, 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 and I'll see, I notice one of them, he, he, he's, he's on the phone trying to order just a bottle of Coke. And he's like, um, how much is it? And they say, it's, uh, it's, it's $2. Ah, I don't know, should I, should I not? If I was a father, if you are a father sat in the same room with that child, you are going to cry. I tell you, you are going to cry because it shows something is wrong with that child. There's insecurity with that child. It shows that there's lack of understanding with that child because everything is paid for. The child that knows will pick up the phone and say, I need a bottle of Coke. I need it with this. I need ice. I need that. I need this. I need that. Because he knows and she knows that it's paid for. This is why we must also come boldly every time. This boldness before God is what brings us out and gives us boldness before men. That is why verse 22 says, have your heart sprinkled away from an evil conscience. Those are the things, verse 22. They are the things that try to make our boldness tarnished. Proverbs 28.1, he said, the wicked flees where no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When you were a little child and said, don't touch the sweets, three of you at home. And mama went out very briefly, said, that sweet, that, those sweets in the, in, the, on the, in the jar on the table, none of you should touch it. None of you should touch it. If two go out of three and one that did not touch, when mama comes back, the two that go, they will be looking like they, 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 somebody has already told that they did it. Nobody has said anything. Only the one that did not touch will be confident. When mom says, hey, have you, has anyone taken a sweet say, I notice it's gone down. The one that didn't take, say, oh, no, I didn't go there. But the other two will be saying, I, 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 I. <laughs> because they did what they shouldn't have done. He said, don't let your heart continue to carry an evil conscience. Let it be sprinkled from every evil conscience. Let your bodies be washed with pure water. Let the law of the spirit of life continue to walk in you instead of allowing and giving room to the law of sin and death. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of boldness, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Number one thing. Number two. So number one, we must be bold continuously. Bold before God and bold before people. Don't forget, I keep making that distinction. It is not arrogance. What is boldness before people? Being assured of what God has said concerning you. Whether it is a report that is given contrary to that, whether it is somebody that is trying to take the place of God in your life, whether it's somebody that is trying to make life difficult for you unnecessarily, be assured of whom God has made you. That is the boldness. 
The Bible says when the disciple says, uh, the, 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 um, when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were harassed by, by, by King Nebuchadnezzar, they said, here, O king, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. That is to say, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We have confidence in our God. When the apostles noticed that they, 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 were, they were afraid because of the threat of the people, they went to God. This is what they prayed for. They said, grant us boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Grant us boldness that we may speak your word in this place. We must be bold. We must be committed to being bold. We are the righteous who are as bold as a lion. Number two, we must remain steadfast. This takes us to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We must remain steadfast in his faithfulness. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He has made a promise. He is faithful. Stay with this. The Bible says, and Sarah judged God faithful. You and I must continue to see. What does that mean? It means that this better covenant with better promises is predicated and built and founded on his faithfulness. You must trust God. If you cannot trust God, you cannot walk effectively with God. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it? Will he not do it? Has he not promised? Will he not make it good? For there is nothing that is difficult for God to do. He is the God of all flesh. Nothing is ever difficult for him to do. I, I have seen in this, my, my, my little life so far, I have seen God do so many things over and over and over that have, that have by his special grace convinced me that it is, there is nothing that God cannot do. It is only as far as how I can trust him, believe him, and then on top of it all, be patient with him. You will live stresslessly when you judge God faithful. You remain steadfast when you judge him faithful. You are not, he said, let us hold fast without wavering, without being blown here and there. You see wind today, you are afraid. You hear the news tomorrow, you are afraid. Oh, that one is crashing. No, no, no. It means you cannot, you have lost sight of God's faithfulness. He said, he who promised is faithful. This better covenant is a covenant made of better promises and it is out of those made by the faithful God. Number three, very quickly, Hebrews 10, 24. We must be committed to fellowship. We must be committed to fellowship. Look at what he said. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Verse 25. He said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day, the day, the capital D day is the day he is returning. Like I told you before, he is coming again. So we must tear up one another. There is some fallacy going around now. People saying, oh, after all, believers have been meeting in their houses and uh, they've been attending, they've not been attending a physical church building, so why a physical church building and blah, 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 blah. Sounds all theoretically right and apt. Sounds like sense, which has elements of truth in it because we are the church wherever we are. The church is not a building, no doubt. But we must understand that there is a place of koinonia. There are certain prayers that is not hard until two or more come to agree. Read your Bible. 
I can pray alone, you can pray alone, I should pray alone, you should pray alone, but by God's divine order and the one, the testator, Jesus Christ himself, he said, when two or three of you come together, I come there because where two of you or more shall agree concerning a particular thing, then it shall be done. Check the entire scriptures. Daniel was praying and praying and praying. When they were about to throw him into the lion's den, he called on his companions. Comradery. They prayed. Every lion's mouth was shut. <laughs> that is Daniel, prophet Daniel himself. He could have stood there saying, you know, I am the senior most here and I can, I can pray by myself. I can do this on my own. So I don't need my brethren. That is a lie. He would have been eaten up. He could have been eaten up. Let me not say will. I don't know the will of mind of God. But he could have been eaten up by animals until he called it on his companions. Peter was locked up in prison. Herod was about to kill him. In Acts chapter 12, his brethren, the church, were together. They prayed and prayed and prayed and an angel came and broke Peter loose. Peter was so much at rest because of his brethren praying for him. He was so much at rest that the angel had to tap him. Can you imagine? Angel breaks into prison door. The man was still sleeping. I like those men. <laughs> I like when you read their stories. Something should jack on your inside. This is a man that they said death is waiting. You would expect him to be panicking, pacing up and down in a prison cell. The man was sleeping. <laughs> Angel had to go and tap him and say, wake up, <laughs> wake up. And when he woke up, he found that the door was open. In fact, he didn't even know it was an angel. He walked outside and then suddenly the man disappeared. He said, ah, this must have been an angel. How can a person be at so much rest? When Herod, who had already killed one, was waiting to kill him. He had already killed James, was waiting to kill him as well. Let's read these things very well. The Bible says, not forsaking the assembling together. That is why we do everything we can to still continue to meet, even if it's virtual. When God opens up the way and we can meet physically, we meet physically and we even include virtual, like I said, on the all night. Because it allows the church to be built. It allows us to service one another. Proverbs chapter 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man lift up the countenance of the other. Let us not allow that lie that is going about saying that people can do without church. Every Christian is a Christian in his own right, which is true. But the reality is that in this new and better covenant, go back to verse 24. He said that there is a way, verse 24, he said that we should consider one another to stir up love and good works. When we come together, I become a benchmark in quote for you. You become a benchmark in quote for me. When you have not seen me in prayer for some weeks, you ask me, Brother Dave, what is happening? If I have not seen you for some weeks, I ask you what is happening. Maybe some overwhelming situations of life. I agree together with you. We plot through it again. We help each other on this race. We are not competing against one another. We are competing together to win the prize together. That is how it is in this kingdom. This is why when pastors are fighting pastors, it doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. How can you be fighting your fellow soldier, your fellow general? You can't be fighting another pastor. What are you fighting him for? <laughs> You're on the same side. <laughs> You're on the same side. So when all these believers fighting each other, pastors fighting pastor, pastor fighting member, member fighting pastor, it's a, it's a device of the enemy to keep, keep the, the church busy in what is not important. The Bible says, stir up love and good works in one another. Stir up love and good works in one another. So we must be committed to fellowship. Number one, we must be bold. 
Number two, we must be steadfast in faithfulness. Number three, we must be committed to fellowship in this new covenant if we want to be proper benefactors. And then finally, we must no longer be sinning willfully. That is what he said in Hebrews chapter 10. Pick it up from verse 26. He said, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And what we are saying is that what Christ did is immaterial. Verse 28. He said, for anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's what used to happen in the law. Verse 29. He said, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Do you think? will be the thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God. Somebody violated a set of written things and they died. How much more the one trampling on the sacrifice of the Son of God underfoot. He said he has trampled on it underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Paul says, shall we continue in sin and say that grace shall abound? He said, God forbid. We should not be sinning willfully. Even though I said to you that Christ's blood has paid for every sin, so if a person sins and the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness, is true. But we should not be willfully sinning. We should not be people who are going out again to intentionally sin. There are two different things. Falling now and then, while it's not good, is a very different thing from somebody who wakes up in the morning and strategically plans to be living a life of sin consistently. And he said he's a child of God. This new, better, this new and better covenant does not ask us to do that. Let us never forget verse 31. God is merciful, verse 31. But it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. It's still the same God. Still the same God. If you said he never killed anybody since the time, the, 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 the Old Testament, the, the law, he never killed anybody. Don't forget Ananias and Sapphira. And nothing, God did not say anything after that. It's not like the time of Noah when he said, oh, that, uh, uh, that I will no longer, you know, uh, destroy the earth like this again with a flood. It's not like that time anymore. After Ananias and Sapphira, he didn't say one word. Holy Spirit just laid them and he kept quiet. Let us not be the next example. <laughs> Let's not be the next example. This is not to scare you, friends. This is just to say a new and better covenant is good, is promising, is, is beautiful. But let us remember, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us keep walking in endurance. This is my concluding scripture. Verse 35. He said, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Many Christians are weak today. They are tired easily. Somebody said one thing to you and said and called you names. You are tired. Pastor hung up his Bible and everything because they told him he's, he's a liar, he's fraud, he's useless. And he knows he didn't do anything. But yet, because of what people said, he's tired. <laughs> Even if he did something. Can't he go to his Jesus and say, Lord, you called me, but I missed it. Have mercy. And then that one fires him up again. <laughs> he said, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't forget, Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Even Jesus Christ did the will of God. 
you and I must do the will of God. <laughs> After you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. This is very important for us. Verse 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, which I will read again as we read it in the, in the Bible reading. I forgot to mention those of you that were listening to this. We read Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 19 to 39 in our Bible reading. You can read it all up, but I've quoted most of it in this last portion today. He said, but we are not of them that draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is the scripture God showed me in the year 1993 that I never forgot. Every time I feel a bit of a, of, 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 especially because of what was done to me, sadly, in, within, from brethren, that makes it a bit heavy. I say, no, but I am not of those that draw back onto perdition. I am of those that press on to the saving of the soul. Believe me, many times, our greatest need to endure, sadly speaking, is not because of what is done to us from outside, but what fellow believers have done to us. What fellow pastors and leaders and, 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 and church workers have done to us and what we have also done to them in their own case. Let us not exonerate anybody here. We're all flesh. We are spirit-filled, but we're all flesh and we can yield to the leanings of the flesh from time to time. We must keep enduring and enjoying one another, sparing one another onto good works. If you notice anybody who is slagging in their spiritual race, you, you spare them on onto good works. Because we are not of those who draw back onto perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. May God continue to keep us in this race, in the mighty name of Jesus. In the series coming throughout next month from next Sunday, by God's grace, we'll be looking at how we can live faithfully in Christ. We have a heritage of faith, and we can live faithfully in Christ, because ultimately, he is our great shepherd. This is what we'll look at from Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 13 over the next four weeks. May God continue to grant us understanding in the name of Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you today. We are grateful. Thank you because you have spoken to us again from the depths of your word. We pray that you will speak to us and you will minister to us powerfully. As we break bread and as we partake, we take our confessional prayer. If anyone is not born again, and if anyone is needing to rededicate their lives because they are not walking the way they ought to walk ever since they gave their lives to Christ, and you're hearing my voice online or wherever you are, please pray with me, and then we will partake. There is a way we take communion every Sunday in the last few weeks. God has commanded us to keep taking communion, and we take communion with any material that can represent the bread, and that, which is like the body, Anything, biscuit, bread is fine. And then we also have a cup which can represent his blood. Use whatever God puts in your hand, coke, wine, water, anything. Just believe that it represents the blood and we will partake. But let us pray in committing to God. Everybody say, dear Lord Jesus, I come to you today to make you my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from unrighteousness. From today, I am born again, I am set free, I am made whole. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in Luke chapter 22, if you have said that prayer for the first time, you can send me an email at info at lifegatecenter.org. 
and I can give you some resources that can help you, and we can discuss some of the matters that you might have been struggling with to help you stand in this race. It is just our own way of working with you to make sure that you are enduring to the end. And may God continue to hear our prayers in Jesus' name. So please do that and let us uh, celebrate our victory over sin and the laws of sin together in Jesus' name. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So we partake of this bread and this cup as a reminder of the new covenant, which is in his blood. And may God help us to enjoy it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Late.